the one thing I think we've learned to stay out of is not just doing something because it's AI and not just doing something that might be a gimmick, doing the thing that really solves a user problem. As obvious as that sounds, it's a little easier to forget. At the end, what you put in front of users should solve one of their problems. We always use this example internally. So Dolly is really cool. Like it can do the coolest thing that we could not do two years ago. However, for example, like this is an extreme example, should we put like a Dolly integration to Duolingo where they can generate image of a chipmunk on the moon? No, no one wants to do that. That's not an actual user problem we're solving. Welcome back to this week's episode of Unsolicited Feedback with me, Fareed Mosava, and my co-host, Brian Balfour. This week, we're joined by Jem Kansu, who is the VP of product of Duolingo, where he has been since nearly the beginning of the company's journey. It's now a public company, and it's helped millions of people learn new languages. And now they're branching out into other subjects like math and music. It's one of the standout consumer successes of the past decade and a public company. And we're excited to chat with him about that and some of the implications it has at the company now in this new AI wave. So we start talking about exactly that. OpenAI recently had their Dev Day, which was one of the most exciting and anticipated events of the year. We talk about the implications of these new releases like GPTs on all kinds of companies, including Duolingo, and how you might want to think about your product strategy going forward. Next, we talk about Airbnb. Airbnb shifted about two years ago to change their release schedule from a traditional consumer product style constant releases to two major releases a year in the winter and summer. And we talk a little bit about the pros and cons of that approach, what we've seen from them over the past two years, and our opinions on the latest winter release. We hope you enjoy the episode. As always, if you have something to add to the conversation, join us in our LinkedIn posts about the different episodes, and feel free to join us at unsolicitedfeedback.co. Thanks. Looking back, do you think being based in Pittsburgh had like secret benefits or was oh, yeah. all a negative? I'm just curious about recruiting, et cetera. It's unique for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. unique. It's like it's not really, even on the top 20 list of hubs, maybe. No, <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> it might make the top 20, but it's off the radar for sure. Right. If you're looking for product management jobs in tech companies, that's not the first city you put on your list for sure. But <laughs> no, I think I think it had a lot of secret benefits. And and the few being, but when I joined, it only was 55 people. And a lot of who joined was transplants. So it was a real startup vibes where like people moved to Pittsburgh for Duolingo. People were really passionate about Duolingo, including me. I mean, I, I think we still carry a lot of that today, but at, at the time it was a lot more intense. So when you move to a city just for the company, I think it creates good vibes. I think that was the case. Like for better or worse, we would spend Saturdays in the office just hacking on stuff. Like that was a pretty normal thing. Again, maybe you sacrifice work-life balance, but I think since since we all were like Duolingo fans, uh, I think we just loved hacking on product and that, that, that created good vibes. The other one is, since it was unique, it attracted, I think, a bit higher interest level on who we hired. So meaning you really had to love the mission, the product, the company to say, you know what? I, I'm going to move to the city I know nothing about. I might not know anybody and and make the jump. I think like real fans join. Yeah, so I think I think that those were the two secret benefits. So it's almost like there was enough good friction in the system right. for hiring <laughs> right. that the people you ended Let's up bring it with to growth principles, yeah, like a growth, growth principle. framework. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The people you ended up having are like 
all in missionary dedicated they're not just there because they're like heat seeking they're there because they they yes. really want to because they had to move uh, exactly I, yeah. I think that was the vibe and also duolingo's mission is very altruistic it's like we want to provide the best education and make it accessible so combine all of those with duolingo's specific mission it was a very missionary environment and i think it still is today but it was a lot more intense when it was yeah. 50 people that's super cool. How much is Carnegie Mellon a draw? Like, is that why the company is in Pittsburgh? Yeah, exactly. So our founders started Duolingo in Carnegie Mellon. So it was a spinoff that came out of Carnegie Mellon. And then as things grew, we've always had an office there. And, and that's been our, our main office. So, but yeah, the origination story actually is our founder, our, our CEO, Luis Vonan, he founded CAPTCHA. So it, that was his first entry to the startup world and then reCAPTCHA, and then those were sold to Google, and Duolingo was his kind of third startup, and he was a professor at CMU uh, in computer science, and him and his, at the time, PhD student, who is our CTO today, Severin, they started Duolingo together, and Duolingo started out as a website, this was 2011, and then it grew from there. That's that's kind of the, the short story. I joined Duolingo 2016, so by that time, we were mostly a mobile company, but Duolingo's was a, a website, it was revolutionary in two ways when it first came out. Everything was still kind of CD-ROMs when you thought about language learning. So it hadn't quite moved to web. And for anything that had moved, it was pretty shitty web experiences. And they were pretty expensive. So Duolingo was free. And a lot better design on web was kind of how Duolingo first got traction. Interesting. Yeah. Has there been like a major inflection point? Because I was looking at your latest shareholder announcement. And the growth at this scale is pretty dang amazing right now like it's like approximately 60 percent year over year growth across all the metrics whether it's like paid subscribers active users things of that nature so it's just anyways i'm interested if there were in certain inflection points i don't think there was a single moment in time where everything went from red to green or anything however there's been i think few points in time where looking back it was the right bet to take and and it paid off mobile was was an obvious one so yeah. duolingo was early in the app space so i think our first apps came out 2013 if i'm not mistaken so it wasn't the first language app but it was pretty early and it took mobile design very seriously so duolingo was also one of those early companies which is just like every we must really design everything on mobile mobile must be great etc and that paid off we were the app of the year when that was a much bigger deal for apps etc so that was a big inflection point like betting on mobile another one i would say is also since you mentioned business metrics is monetization figuring out monetization was a big unlock so we did not have any monetization until 2016 so uh, the oh. it, it was just user growth just build a good product grow users which was also the old kind of facebook model as well it's just just get users <laughs> you'll figure it out later that was the vibe yeah. at the time yeah and duolingo followed that model and in 2016, we really started experimenting properly with how to monetize. And that's also around the time I joined. So I joined when this this was starting out and I was the monetization PM. And that's been a big inflection point as well. Since we didn't know what would work, we tried a lot of things. We tried, does ads work? What works, what doesn't? Does in-app purchases as a model work for us? Does subscription work as a model for us? And eventually we landed on what we have now, which is, which is freemium. But being able to monetize obviously unlocked everything else because right. then we could fund our self-funded growth rather than VC money funded growth was was the previous sure. scenario. Yeah. Is paid a piece of the mix on acquisition? I'm just curious. Or is it mostly organic, word of mouth? 
driven growth. It's very high. It's mostly organic. We do do some paid marketing, so it's not zero, but I think roughly more than 80% of our growth is still organic word of mouth. And we use paid for strategic growth initiatives. So in a region where we want to boost growth, et cetera, but it boosts our growth. Majority is driven by free. I imagine paid in this category is expensive because you're probably competing with higher LTB products in some of that limited inventory. Quick side story, learning another language has been literally the worst (laughs) thing for me in my life. I took three years of Spanish in high school, three years. And when I got to college to take the entry placement exam to to decide like which course you should be (laughs) starting in, I got three out of 150 questions correct. <laughs> Three. And I cheated on two of them. Uh, like that is, that is, that is my story. I was so, I don't know how it was possible. I remember sitting down with the college advisor and she's like, comp side, great. You know, we'll put you here. Like math, we'll, we'll put you here. She's like, we need to have a conversation about <laughs> your second language. And that scared me, honestly, from pursuing a second language in college. I, I did everything I could to not have to meet the second language requirement at Michigan. And so, like, it was just... <laughs> yeah. It was just bad. It was, I don't know, for some reason, I regret it now because, like, later in life, I got much more into, like, international travel. And obviously, I think that's a, probably a big trigger point for a lot of people to want to learn second languages later on in life. But, yeah, never my forte. Yeah. Well, do you use Duolingo at all? Not now. I mean... Look, I've got two little ones, an 18 yeah. month and a four. I My brain literally does not have any capacity yeah. to absorb extra things. So uh, at this point between work and family, but I'm hoping to. And it's kind of actually why I wanted to talk to you. So one of the topics I think we commonly come back to on this podcast is product market fit expansion, especially for like later stage companies. And I remember we were jamming on topics lately and we saw the expansion into music and math. And it struck me as like, those two seem very different from one another, right? Like to me, like math is, okay, it's tied to a core subject, right? From like elementary through college, there's probably high willingness to pay there. Like it's, Music is probably is more seen as like an extracurricular, right? Probably different audience, different type of willing. So the two just seem very different from each other. And I'm interested how you all thought about those two, because my guess is you all think about the core proprietary part of Duolingo a little bit differently on the inside than I think yeah. most people would take on the outside. And that's that, that's my assumption, but uh, or, or maybe it was just like you picked yeah. out of the hat. I don't our know. Sort of outsider, <laughs> our outsider view is like music makes a lot of sense because it's like a language. It's a thing people in adulthood or later in life want to learn. They care about. They're excited about it. They're doing it for some like non-school reason. And nobody learns calculus because they just feel like it. So we think about product market fit expansion as like same product, different audience or different audience same product as like the two most common expansion mechanisms. So like internationalization is same product or adding French, you know, whatever, Turkish, Farsi, that's like, you know, same product, slightly different audience. But 
music and math are both like sort of both, but like we don't know anything about yeah, like the core tech. Like what what makes those good fits? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I think you guys both picked apart some of the reasons why we chose music and math. One of them is so before even we got to more topics beyond yeah. language, I think we realized we have some core competencies that we can apply to other subjects. Meaning, we we know how to build good habits. Like we have a lot of mechanics uh, that like the st daily streak, the leaderboards, etc. That we we have built into Duolingo that really work in building a good habit and and to get users to continue learning. So. And then the obvious question was, okay, we've done it for language and we continue uh, doing that and keep improving that. How can we apply it to other subjects? In the world of what can we teach, there's endless stuff to teach for sure. Math and music are very different from each other, but they both for us made sense in different ways. Um, I think, Fred, you said yeah, music is just like language where, um, you know, there's demand for people to learn. Like they want people want to play instruments or learn music for if you went around and asked like, the general population, would you like to learn more music? The general yeah. answer would probably be yes. Similar to languages, would you want to yeah, learn Yeah, it's like Spanish? I, my two sure. goals are learn Spanish, learn to play guitar, and I don't do either of them. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Yeah. Although I am a Duolingo <laughs> user on Spanish right now, so I, I am. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. I will, okay. like, once once I'm past the kid phase, I think I'll do, yeah. I will be for the music, because that's something I want to yeah. get back to. But anyways, yeah, keep going, keep going, John. No, so this, uh, this was like a short N equals two survey, but I think that is, in a, in a way, language and music were similar where there's general demand but these things are hard to do like it takes a lot of hours to get proficient in learning french or learning music etc however we we believe we've cracked some formula in doing it for language and music was a good adjacency in, in that regard so there is demand that exists like humans want to learn music there's music apps out there that like people are doing it however we believe we can make it more fun and use all the Duolingo mechanics we've learned, apply it to music to make it fun. And and I think the key to all of these to call out, we talk about fun, like it's good, like mobile apps being fun helps our metrics, et cetera. But I think the underlying reason is these things take so many hours to learn, right? If, if you want to say, I want to be proficient in French or piano, you're talking about thousand hours. So to get to thousand hours, you need a habit. You're not going to get it in like a rush. And then like, uh, I'm traveling to Madrid in six days. Let me learn Spanish. Like it's a good thought, but it doesn't quite work. And music is very similar. Those two matched how the dynamics of those topics work. Math is interesting. Math, I think made sense to us for a different reason. And those are two. One is... Language, especially if you think about English, in countries where people learn English as a second language, it helps improve people's life outcomes significantly. Like if you learn English, you can go to a better school, get a better job, get better pay. Math is very similar. So in, in our mission to provide like the best education and make university available, it fit our mission perfectly. Because if you know better math, it's not directly like you would get a better pay. But you could maybe get an engineering degree or uh, but getting that process started, start with math in a lot of times. The other one is Duolingo is interesting in uh, there is demand for language um, and Duolingo actually created a lot of that demand after it became more popular. Sure. We asked our U.S. users and said, hey, were you learning a language before Duolingo? 80% said no, like I wasn't. So there is there's the thought and the huh. demand, but not the tools to do it. And Duolingo kind of became that tool to scratch that itch. 
we believe with math we could do the same. So it is true that not a lot of people are walking around in the world saying, I wish I was doing calculus this morning, like that no one really says that. <laughs> However, uh, a lot of people do say, hey, like I wish I was like quicker at tip calculation, or I wish I could interpret what these stats mean and make sense of it. And also you have to remember, I think in, in as we work in tech, we get like very attuned and advanced in like doing these things. But like, if you think about everybody, there's a real need in what math can do for you. And we're hoping to unlock that similar to how people wanted to learn Spanish, but no one really did anything about it. I think we could do that with real life math is what we believe we can do. Uh, interesting. So it's, it's a different thesis uh, of, of expansion for each of these subjects. The reason we did them all together was, well, we were kind of middle of the road for both of these topics. We already had launched a math app, but we were going to launch a music app. Then we said, okay, let's bring them all together and launch in, in our app in one go. Cool. And this and we're talking about the right, like at the right time because we launched it to everybody yesterday. Oh. This, this all went live. <laughs> like we're seeing metrics today for the first time. The point that essentially the Duolingo product expanded the target market for language learning, I think is fascinating. Oh, was that a hypothesis like early on that by making it fun, using the gamified elements to build a habit that it would actually expand the market? Because like I imagine like VC early on take Duolingo, let me find the oh, number Rosetta of Stone learners. is only X revenue, like Free, this is an yeah, 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 scale yeah. market, like blah, 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 right? Yeah. It, just, it feels like a bit of a counterintuitive insight that I just think is really fascinating. It wasn't necessarily part of the grand plan when the Duolingo first started started out. And it's it's a hard plan to write as planned, saying, hey, language learning market is this big. We're going to take it and evolve it with our product. It's hard to bet on. But I think what happened, especially as as mobile became the main channel, is there's also various types of user demand, I think, overlapped to create, I think, our Duolingo user base. One of them is, well, people also want to do something useful with their mobile time. There's just desire to do that. Um, for example, we don't particularly feel like we compete with other education apps. At the end, we compete with screen time. Well, how much time do you spend on a game versus Instagram, et cetera? That, at the end, is more of our competition. So all that being said, I think the market expansion a little bit came from there's desire to learn language. Generally, it's expensive and not very fun and takes a lot of time. We we solved those as much as we could. And I think there was desire that if you're spending time on your phone, can you just learn something with it? And if, if that thing you learn, you have some affinity towards and language generally touches a lot of people in the world. I think all of those overlapping helped the market expansion situation. But to answer your question, it was not part of the grand plan. I think we saw in the data as we grew that that was a growing part of our user base. Yeah. I will just say personally for me, that idea of like, I have a certain amount of screen time, downtime in between things. I've only been using Duolingo for a few weeks, but it is a replacement for looking at reels. When I open my phone and I'm like, I could just like doom scroll Twitter or I could like <laughs> learn a little bit of Spanish. I suddenly don't feel as bad about my screen time if I open Duolingo. It feels like a game. It's a little bit fun. and But I feel like I'm getting something productive out of it. And it's so interesting because like for so long, there was this thesis around, ed I worked in games for a while, educational games. And they're like, oh, they're educational first and they're game second. But like Duolingo does find that perfect balance of being like, honestly, even if I don't care about learning Spanish, I'm kind of like the repetition, the mechanics, it does feel like goofing around on my phone. 
and yet I'm still learning some stuff. So it's super interesting to think about it as like competing in the attention economy of what am I spending time on versus I am doing language learning and I'm seeking out a problem to that. Super fascinating to think about. And mobile is such a huge unlock for that. I feel like we should test Fareed's Spanish skills here live. Oh, no, 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 no. I will. Okay. <laughs> Let me just tell you one thing about this that's so funny about the mechanic. So last night at dinner, I'm sitting there and we're sitting and my, my kids are teenagers. They're 15 and 14. And I said something like, oh, I got to check. I got I to get on Duolingo today so I can keep my streak alive. And my daughter just like eye rolled me harder than she's ever <laughs> eye rolled me. And I was like, and she was like, oh. I was like, whatever, you have like a hundred snap streaks. Like, don't make fun of me. <laughs> so anyway, it was a real dinner table conversation. Interesting. Last question on this. We talked through a couple of topics that were kind of close in that PMF expansion. What is there an example of a topic or something that people want to learn that's like very far off? That's like one of the most least adjacent things that, yeah. that you all think about. I don't know if I know the perfect answer to this question, but I think things that you need a physical thing to teach is hard for us to do digitally. For example, we've, I mean, we, when we went on our soul searching journey on what topics should we expand to, math and music eventually was a quick conclusion, but we looked at a lot of stuff. For example, fitness was another category. Like that also betters people's lives. Should we think about that? But one, it's a very crowded space and a lot of people are trying to make it happen, but it's also a very hard problem with just a device and it's very branched out. So even narrowing down what fitness means is hard, but since you have to do something offline, to continue the digital experience, it just makes it very hard for us to optimize a complete different product problem. So I think things that have a physical component that you need to do are things we generally stayed out of. So fitness being one of them, but you can imagine that category has a lot of other topics in it. Yeah, the one I used that actually I think I feel like has borrowed some UI patterns from you all is Ladder. It's pretty good app, super well designed. They've implemented a lot of the similar gamification mechanics around streaks and other things, but it's very well done. So very yeah. cool. Yeah. Check it out. All right, should we kick off our first topic? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so I'll, I'll start us off with this topic. I think unless you've been living under a tech rock, you probably saw OpenAI's announcement this week. And they announced a lot of different things, but I think the one that we should probably narrow in on is their announcement around GPTs. And there's two parts of this, right? There's like what a GPT is and how you can create one. But then there's another element of it, which is the GPT store, right? So the two parts of it, I'll introduce the first part. So what is a GPT? First of all, Details are scarce here, so I just want to like put that disclaimer out for the audience. Like we're going off of a couple live demos, some articles that you know have screenshots that were released by the. <laughs> well, you haven't? Yeah, I have it. I dropped wait, it yesterday. Turbo. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait! You have the GPT creator? Yeah, I just made one. No way. Oh, <laughs> oh, I didn't even know that they were available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crap. Uh, they're okay. just rolling out. No, they had to pause the rollout. They apparently have had like, they've had to slow their roll around this. I think there's a lot of demand. And also I read some article that there's like somebody's DDoSing them. I, I don't know exactly what's happening, but like, okay. I think I was like in the test group for a moment. I don't know if I still have it today, but I did have okay. it for a minute. <laughs> All right. I, I checked this morning and I still do. So apparently okay. Fareed's a bit cooler than I am. So maybe you'll fill in some details. I, so. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, my random number generator is slightly different than yours. I think is really what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the AB test tool. <laughs> 
So GPTs are basically, uh, you can create a custom version of chat GPT. I know the naming's like kind of confusing here. Um, but the interesting part is the way that you can go and create one of these things is through natural language prompting, right? It's actually very accessible for a large audience. There's other configuration elements that you can also do that beyond creating it through natural language. And one of the examples that was demoed live by Sam Altman was he very quickly created a GPT around advising founders, early stage startup founders. And so he gave it a few prompts on what he wanted it to do. He uploaded a knowledge resource, which was one of his presentations that he had done recently. And all of a sudden, out comes the other end is this experience where founders can essentially interact, ask it things, questions around early stage startup growth. You can do some things like customize the style, the tone, as well as other elements. And since then, there's some, been some other things that have been released. I think Zapier had, now has an integration where you can embed actions within these GPTs. And there's been a couple other examples. So that that's one version. The other thing here is the GPT store, which is really designed to provide two things for creators of GPTs, distribution and monetization, right? So very similar to the App Store on mobile. And it's very unclear on how the monetization elements are going to work right now. They kind of hinted at both revenue sharing as well as just being able to sell these things like individually. But details are super scarce here. Nobody understands or knows what the revenue sharing, how it's going to work, when this stuff is going to be enabled as as part of it. But it really kind of takes OpenAI in a direction of being a kind of consumer destination and app store. And I think we'll probably talk a lot about the history of different app stores and how this might go. But yeah. anyways, the whole thing is a bit fascinating. And I, I'm interested in just before we dive into specific vectors, what your major gut like takeaways, the first things that kind of came to mind when you all saw this announcement. And maybe Jem, I'll start with you and then I'll get Fareed's reaction. Any first era of, of an app store is the Wild West. And I'm so excited to experience the Wild West of the GPT app store. And by that, <laughs> I mean, like, if you remember all the weird apps that were like, I mean, they were fads, but they were so funny. There was a beer app, if you remember them. Like, oh, I remember. Used- <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Facebook, the fa- yeah. Oh, oh, and the iOS. It was both the on the iOS. Facebook platform and yeah. iOS one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then there was the rich app where you had to pay like I think a thousand dollars to just. I am rich. I love that. I, one. I am rich. <laughs> I always think about that because NFTs are basically the I am rich of the modern era. And like, yeah, they're oh, what a great idea that was. <laughs> So yeah, at this point, I can't wait to see what the weird fad apps that come out on GPT because it'll be very funny is is my guess. I'm just genuinely also excited about this kind of GPT generation, custom GPTs. And we could do that with with a lot more complicated prompting. But the fact that now you can do it with a natural language is is a big unlock. I think that unlocks a lot of creativity. I'm, I'm super excited by that. The other announcement that you didn't mention is speed and cost. I think that also for companies, especially yeah. using their API to build stuff, it was pretty expensive and it still is expensive. But in almost a year, the costs are coming down like 60%, 50%. That is a good sign that in one to two years, it might be like almost as like what AWS is. It's just, yeah, there's some cost, but you can effectively build experiences and provide it for free. And, and that's also pretty exciting. We talked a lot about margins and costs around AI tools on a previous episode. And I think this does sort of send a message that's like, hey, this is going to have Moore's Law type declines. And so 
you can count on that as a builder. Now, it might still be expensive now, and that's a pretty big bet. For them to already be starting the faster and cheaper, like Amazon style, like yes. there are only two things people care about, speed of delivery, cost and selection, three things, sorry. They're sort of doing that with this. All that people care about is size of context window, speed and cost. And we're actually focused on cost and size of window and a little bit speed is an interesting ingredient mix to sort of say like, build on us. We're gonna make it smarter and we're gonna make it cheaper, go. And I think that's a really good point there. Free, what were your initial reactions? So initial reactions, number one, sounds pretty cool, but I, I am still not sure what the difference between chat GPT and a custom GPT is exactly. It's like the vision of a, you know, all knowing AGI type thing, you know, versus a specific bot. And so I, I did have it. Uh, the way you get to it is there's a little explore button at the top. If that's visible, that's where all of these are embedded. And I tried it. I played around a little bit. I will say it's kind of nice to give it some specific instructions. You can give it tone and style. So imagine, Gem, if I were building a language learning one, I could say like, hey, this is just for language learning. Be encouraging. Be a little bit funny. You know, you know, there's that kind of stuff. The second is being able to upload your own resources to it. I will say that's still hard work. I was goofing around. I like to play golf. I was like, let's build a golf practice coach. And I actually asked it like, go to YouTube and like find all these videos from this specific instructor and do this stuff. Cause I was like goofing around with it. And it basically was like, I'm not going to do that. You have to go get the transcripts and like dump them in here. And you know, what I did end up having to do as I started exploring was like, go to chat GPT, ask it how to write this code. And then it like sort of generated. And then I was like, oh, maybe I could do that and then plug it in. So I think there's still work in getting that custom resource. If you look at the demo that Sam did, he uploaded a transcript of a talk that he did. Those are not easy to come by. Like there's real work you have to do to get those going. So if I wanted to build a GPT based on our podcast, right? I would have to like do the work to get all the audio, transcribe it, summarize it, build it into like useful inputs to the GPT. So I still think there's real work here. I think it'll be really easy to build commodity, easily copyable things but I'm still not sure what the like, this is worth paying for version of them will be. And I am like you, super excited to see where people take that. My best guess is games are gonna be like the first thing because that's what happens on every single new marketplace is like somebody figures out how to make a cool game and then hundreds of people follow it with different versions of it. I can't imagine that we're not going to see like a Mafia Wars type game or, oh, you know, mud type <laughs> game or a no. space trade wars type game or something like that, that is built on a GPT. But I don't know. I don't know if you can do multiplayer. I don't know how you would manage state. I, it's still not clear, like how you're going to build something great, but I'm excited to see what people do with it. Right now, it almost seems like, hey, ChatGPT can do anything suck out this light subset and then just publish it as a name. And I'm not sure that that's like enough yet. So I, I'm curious to see what people build, but maybe mm. I'm just not thoughtful or creative enough about it yet. Well, I do think one of the things that you mentioned, like ChatGPT can do so many different things, right? It's like the most ultimate version of a horizontal product ever in terms of its yeah. capabilities. And I imagine, as we talked about, that's probably one of its biggest friction items to adoption is like people enter into that surface area and they're like, what the hell do I do? Like, how do I prompt this thing? What is it capable of, right? Like all of these types of things. And so 
I do, I think, like, in the short term, feel like these, even if it is what you're talking about, which is you're taking this little slice of a use case away from chat GPT and putting a name on it. I do think that probably helps activation and adoption, helping people understand what they can do with it. Right. And so they're essentially, rather than them taking on the work of creating all those things themselves and educating their users, they're just like, I'm going to do a user generated version (laughs) of this This or a supply generated version of this. Yeah. Sort of like, yeah. So, okay. I really like this thread of thought for a quick second. So just to like recast it lightly, it's, Hey, when you build a really horizontal product, the biggest, hardest problem with it is activation. It it is ultimately like, I come to this product, it can do anything. What do I do first? Don't know where to start. And this is true for even something like Slack or Notion, which is like, what doc am I going to write? What message am I going to send? What channel am I going to create? What people am I going to send it to? It's even more of a problem for something like ChatGPT. So one of the solutions to that is you do customized onboarding, like, Oh, what do you want to learn? What do you want to do, et cetera? But this is sort of like a UGC approach to smile problem is like an interesting way to think about this, right? And I I love that take on it. Like that's actually a really cool idea. Like for instance, I did send one of my kids the math tutor GPT that they published because I've been telling them to try it. And they're sort of like, okay, I don't know, maybe. But if you're like, hey, this is a math tutor, you can ask it math questions. Even though ChatGPT can do that too, maybe that just lowers the friction. I think that's a really interesting worldview on what the goal of GPTs is. As we were talking about this, I I also have two things that are unsolved in my head. One of them is interacting with a text box is in this year, it's still a pretty dry experience. There's still a barrier to entry. You got to think about what you're saying over and over and over again. And the novelty wears off really quickly. So is can any of these apps or custom-generated GPTs create recurring behavior is a big question mark. Because, 100%. Uh, I mean, there's a reason we use graphical interfaces o- on our phones because it really helps make a delightful experience and you don't have to think about typing anything over and over again. All these experiences today are very typing-based. Can they overcome, especially if you have, if you want apps that will scale to big numbers right now, I think the most successful product, unless I've missed anything in the zeitgeist is the chat GPT itself, the horizontal product itself, the wrappers or the things people have created hasn't quite hit scale. And I think part of that has to do with, I think graphical UIs haven't really been layered on to these experiences and will the app store enable that eventually? I think that would be a big unlock if they can figure that one out. And the other one is Math Tutor is a great example. Let's say you you realize Math Tutor is, is a very useful way to use GPT. Is it that hard to create? Because the horizontal product is is very no. good. You just need to prompt it in, in almost now like full natural language in a few prompts and you can create your own Math Tutor. So would you pay for something that's not as differentiated? All those things are, are a bit of a question. See, mark. that's why I think of it as like if it's a method to get people activated, I buy that. But then those things are not really monetizable, right? Let me add one more thing to this. Your first point was also one thing that hit me because literally in their screenshots, one of the concept GPTs is math mentor, right? So like kind of like do a link. So I was like coming to this conversation as I was thinking about that. And if I was Jem, how I might be doing this. But I mean, the big bet that you all have taken is you've created a very engaging and fun experience, which requires so much other elements that I currently can't get in this chat experience. And so, you know, comparing the two is different. Let me add a third thing, which is the app store, for example, 
an early Facebook platform or App Store in iOS or Android, those sit on top of a product or device where you've already built the very frequent habit. Ah, interesting. I have my phone with me all day long. And the thing that I can't resolve in my head is like they're, they've got this, they're layering on this app store, but it's not clear to me that actually they own the frequent enough habit that this thing sits on top of to really drive the type of distribution and monetization that you see in these other app stores. They announced something like 100 million active users. But as we all know, you can measure activation active yeah. in a lot of different ways, right? And from my anecdotal experience and talking to folks is the the engagement and the depth of engagement people have with this product already is is pretty light. Um, it, it's well, pretty light. So it was that's the other okay, piece that I, guess, I haven't resolved in my let's head. assume that hundred million is an MAU number. Seems relatively reasonable that that would be like what they would use. What is your best guess for a DAU-MAU ratio for ChatGPT today? This is a, this is a really hard and fully speculative, yeah. but I'm going to guess 10%. 10%. Yeah, I was going to say 10% or below. I think it's like probably around there, single or high single digits. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because like a uh, highly engaging social game type product is what? Probably between 30 and 40% TAU, MAU, depending on yeah. how many other news users yeah. are new, because news always counts DAU. You know, there's like a little bit of trickiness there. So you think it's 10%, which would be like a three-day-per-month habit on average? Yes, and I, I was also thinking majority of their use, I don't know if it's a mobile app versus web. I, w I assumed oh, yeah. web as well, like mobile web or desktop web. And generally, the DAU to MAU ratio is lower because you, you haven't even okay. gone through the... The good friction of downloading and committing. So my guess was that also lowers it. Like it's, it's mostly a website. And anecdotally, I think Brian said this. I only know one person that like almost every day uses it. Everyone else I know is like, oh yeah, let me go try this on chat GPT. And a lot of the use cases, like I was going to go to Wikipedia, but that's too much to read. Let me search for the same information on chat GPT. And it's, it feels sparse. I don't see people around me just consistently okay. using it. But that's very... So active. let's say it's like, I'm just trying to think through like, what is the actual size of the marketplace opportunity, Brian, which I think will be basically built on top of who are the highly engaged users. So let's say in the case of ChatGPT, that's like people that are 3D7 or 47, meaning they use it three or four days out of seven on an average week. If we think, Jem thinks it's 10%, I think it might be a little bit higher DAU, MAU ratio. That's going to be majority these high engaged users, right? There's going to be like, so let's say five to 7% of that hundred million. So you have like five to 7 million hardcore users. That number feels a little low to me, just given the revenue numbers and the amount of people who pay for it, which I suspect is another way to triangulate towards this. But let's say it's 10 million or so at most hardcore users. That is enough to build a marketplace off of, right? I, I th you think? In the early days. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'll play the other side of this, right? Which is not only are they handing off this like activation problem to a user or supply generated thing, but as soon as they do that, and especially as they add the monetization incentive, they are now also adding an incentive for the creators of those GPTs to pull the users and ecosystems back into GPT. So they are creating another type of growth loop where those people are all of a sudden going to go start promoting and trying to drive traffic back into the experience, which doesn't really exist today. Like most of what you see on Twitter and stuff are like, 
the tweet boys that are like, oh, look at this like cool yeah. thing or like chat GPT is going to like take over your job, like types of threads. Right. But I think that's the other part of it. So I think maybe the more optimistic view on this is, yeah, may maybe the single digit millions, 10 millions is enough to get going. And by launching this and solving both the activation as well as kind of adding another growth loop here, they can basically start to find an inflection point where that 10 million turns into tens of millions of, of, right. of hardcore users with daily habits. So, well, I also think, so we, we started talking a lot about the marketplace and, and the app store. However, I feel like they're also, since this is such a new territory, they're experimenting with many revenue lines. So they have their subscription base that they own the relationship to the customer. Now there's going to be the app store and then there's the API product. And the enterprise product. Yeah, and the enterprise product. And we, we're talking about users that go directly to the chat GPT destination or the marketplace. But I suspect actually majority of DAUs will use chat GPT without realizing it's chat GPT, like products that link into it, use it as input. Duolingo is yeah. one of them, like we're working a lot of, but we don't say, hey, this is chat GPT, but we use it, for example, to explain your answer. Like if you give us an answer. That feature rules, by the way. It's awesome. You I like it? Cool. Okay, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's been great because now we can provide custom explanations using ChatGPT, but the user will never know it's ChatGPT. It's part of our, our product suite. I suspect that is a much faster unlock that they will do in DAU exposure, meaning DAUs that are actually using ChatGPT without knowing before ChatGPT becomes a destination that you consistently go to it as high habit. Yeah. High stickiness, etc. And I, I think that's where they want to be. It's so interesting to look at the DNA of OpenAI as a company from the outside. For all of what I've heard, their success as a consumer company is a total accident. They never, I, I don't think they wanted to be a consumer company. I think they wanted to be a developer company and maybe an enterprise company. I don't think they ever expected to be building the world's largest consumer product, right? Which is sort of like where it's headed right now, which I think is really interesting to see. Okay, they've embraced it, not only in terms of like making ChatGPT better week over week over week. I mean, some of the improvements in GPT-4 make it a lot more useful. It can browse the web. It can take input from images. It is getting more valuable for me and I am seeing my engagement go up with it, which means someone is actually caring about that. Then layering on this marketplace thing, which is like, oh, now we're a destination for other people's consumer apps. We'll see if it's successful or not. Plugins were not. This is sort of like V2 of trying to do that, which I think is interesting. Their willingness to like upend it. But as Brian pointed out, could make them even more of a consumer destination because of this virtuous two-sided loop between apps are bringing in their own users, those people activate on GPT, et cetera, et cetera. But also their distribution drives success for these apps. And so there's a two-sided marketplace there. At its core, I think if, you asked them three years ago, like, what do you want to be doing? They're like building awesome APIs for people like Duolingo to build great GPT powered stuff in their products. These, these were meant to be demos. And now it's like an accidental consumer success, which is just wild. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in maybe exploring this from a different seat and a different view. And Jim, I, I think there's probably a lot of product leaders like you sitting out there looking at this announcement with products that are kind of related to this experience, right? And they're probably sitting there debating, do I get in the game? Do, do I get into the Wild West? Do I make that part of my roadmap? 
Or is, is that a distraction? Is that going to pull people away from my core product? Is it going to cannibalize it somehow? Right. Like my guess is there's a bunch of product leaders kind of sitting here looking at this being like, all right, like what the hell do I do? Where do, where does this fit in? I'm just interested in how you think about it as a product leader and when it makes sense to go out West versus, you know, stay at home base. For the past year now. So ever since GPT-4 first came out, when we first got the demo, We've been talking about what is the best way to go about it ever since. And I assume everyone has had somewhat of a reaction similar. Like, there was also so much hype that you you had to think about it. But um, I think now looking back, so it's been a year since we first officially said we want to have some investment in various parts of the company. And, and to summarize, we're doing, I would say, roughly three big things that use GPT at Duolingo. One of them is building features that leverage that are user facing. So explain my answer is one where you give us an answer, we give you a custom explanation on what you got wrong. Another one is what we called role play where you can practice Spanish that is tailored to your level, that is a scenario and you effectively, I mean, it's a, it's a chatbot experience, but chatbots were shit. This is actually a, a good chatbot experience that leverages ChatGPT. A second one is content creation, which is for us, a lot of our, the course content was written by hand. It was very manual. Right now, we can get the first draft by GPT. We, we're now building a lot of tooling that facilitates that, that prompts it in a certain way, tailors the difficulty, et cetera, et cetera. And it speeds up content creation quite a bit. And the third one, I guess, is is no surprise, is Copilot. So engineering efficiency is, is another area that where we're using GPT. I think as a portfolio, as a company, we want to actively leverage all of these to improve. The one thing I think we've learned to stay out of is not just doing something because it's AI and not just doing something that might be a gimmick, doing the thing that really solves the user problem. As obvious as that sounds, it's a little easy to forget. At the end, what you put in front of users should solve one of their problems. We always use this example internally. So Dolly is really cool. Like it can do the coolest thing that we could not do two years ago. However, for example, like this is an extreme example, uh, should we put like a Dolly integration to Duolingo where they can generate image of a chipmunk on the moon? No, no one wants to do that. That's not an actual user problem we're solving. It's really cool, but it doesn't solve anything. I use this extreme example because we come up with ideas every time we talk about generative AI. I'm like, oh, we, sh we can do X, we can do Y. But sometimes we forget to ask, like, do humans want that? Like, is that a need that Duolingo users have? I think that's the thing we come back to. But all of that being said, I think this technology is incredibly powerful. I think if for anyone that's running product, you have to think about if it can help your business. The answer is, I think, can't be always yes, but it, it to avoid it also is, is a mistake is kind of how I feel about it. Let me ask a more specific question, and you may or may not be able to answer this. I'm interested, are you in, in the seat right now thinking about dedicating some people to building like GPTs? for deal like whether it's experimental or more proactive we have a team that we are calling kind of an experimental teaching team they're not building gpts but they've been tasked to figure out how else we can apply the this gpt technology to teaching a language i guess it's close enough but they're not trying to go create custom gpts to put on the gpt store that we haven't even discussed this because it's so new but what we are trying to be a little bit trying to leapfrog ourselves and and have some group that's working on all right what is a different version of duolingo that you could do with gpt so trying to disrupt from within is something we're trying to do yeah because i imagine right like one 
very simplistic version of this is, right, you could look at this and be like, okay, well, language learning is going to be a use case that people use this experience for. And we could go create some Duolingo GPTs. However, a bunch of questions come up as we discussed. It's like, well, it doesn't look like we can use the gamification mechanics that we know build a habit. We don't know how to monetize this. Like, so, and then all of a sudden leads to, well, do we really want to tie our product, our brand, and those things like to the experience as it cannibalize? And I think there's like a whole set of strategic questions for people that uh, with existing products go down. So, but the flip side of it is, well, if I don't get in the game, if I don't get in the wild, wild west, are we going to miss a window on something? Because it, it's tend to not be like the first people to the platform that win, like the the beer app or the 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 thousand dollar app. It's the it's the folks that come right behind it from those lessons learned that that tend to emerge as the early winners. I agree hundred percent. I think right now it's a very interesting space, and diving head in is a strategy. But I think again, coming back to seeing what is possible, and then deciding, okay. What is a good use case to solve in the world, like in 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 human life? Is that, this is how I view it? That we can take this technology and apply to language learning. Has this? We use this analogy a lot. You can today learn a language by reading a book. There's a reason people don't do it because it's boring. You can probably learn a language with ChatGPT. Like if you actually dedicate the time and send prompts back and forth, you can probably learn Spanish. Again, no one wants to do it because it's boring. So I think there's like, okay, then what is the problem to solve? Engagement. Then to us, then it's like, okay, we should still continue doing our work on making this thing engaging. Mm -hmm. The fact that ChatGPT can teach a language is very powerful and it's really cool, but it doesn't quite solve the real human problem that exists. I like that. Yeah, I like that. You're, You're like really drilling down like root, root problem in learning is engagement. And then you can look at these experiences and be like, well... Does this help me create a better engaging experience? Do I think this is going to be a more engaging experience? Yes or no, right? And that helps you answer like where you start to deploy your resources. So even though it might be another acquisition surface area or a monetization surface area, it's like at the end of the day, where it's at or what we know, the details we know right now is like it does not help solve that root root problem in my specific category and vertical. So I, I like that. I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of like, what is the right strategy for someone trying to like understand, think about building in this space. And oddly enough, for the past like year, it's kind of been, it's not a hundred percent, just wait and see what the next thing is. Cause it's like the progress is so fast and sort of like hitting this exponential curve that if you're like building based on these capabilities here, they're like 10 X in just six months. And so why would you even bother? Part of me is like, okay, well, maybe the strategy is tinker, learn, figure out what it's good at, what it's not good at, but kind of wait a little while to see what the next big unlock is. I think what's interesting is that Duolingo is a wonderful example of this is like the companies that are going to be the most successful, I think building around AI in a durable way, that's not going to get competed out by open AI or other general purpose companies are the ones where the scaffolding around the core problem is as important as the core problem itself, which is like, how do I generate great lessons? For instance, you could think of as like one part of the problem, but the scaffolding around it is still super important. How do I drive engagement? How do I keep it fun? How do I make it intuitive? How do I help people understand what they're supposed to do? When do I use clicking versus typing versus... And the horizontal companies are never 
can't do those things because it's not, that's not their job. That's not what they're interested in. And so if you think about it from a competitive perspective, it's like, yeah, somebody's going to build a language learning GPT bot, but like you have unique insight about what all the scaffolding is that makes someone actually successful and engaged and using the product. And I think that's actually true in almost every vertical, but you have to be focused on the verticals where the scaffolding is valuable versus just like, oh, we're going to add a feature to GPT and like, it's still really horizontal. It's like, well, that's just going to get rolled in and sucked up and destroyed, <laughs> you know, like eaten up. Whereas if you're focused on like a use case that has a lot of other stuff that AI can help make it more successful, then I think you can still build and not worry about what the next release is. The next release isn't going to kill your business. The next release is just going to make it more awesome. Thinking about it that way has sort of like led me to different corners of the world. Exactly. I mean, I agree 100%. The, the one other thing I was going to add is ChatGPT enabled this world where the demo is a lot more powerful than it used to be when you think about features, meaning you can create a demo in five minutes. It's very easy versus we, if we were discussing a feature, getting a demo, we get the team together, we get on their roadmap. The first demo looks like shit anyway, but it takes three weeks and the world is now flipped over. You got a great demo in five minutes and then you get really excited about the demo because you're like, well, if we got this in five minutes, imagine what we can do in five weeks. Like it, this thing will be amazing. However, I think that's a bit of a trap. At least that's what we've realized because there's a lot of edge cases in the last mile that come with GPT style features yeah. that really throw you off. For example, it, it works for a certain use case, but it's very hard to test because the dynamic thing you're plugging into your feature. So the demo might be really cool, but getting to the last mile might take five more months, two years, and things evolve quite a bit since then. That is the, another, another portion that I think a lot of companies have jumped in. But then you realize to get to the good use case, like the good scaffolding you mentioned, Fareed, is is like building it out that it, where a user just does not perceive w what's happening, but they just like the experience, takes a long time. So if you get the good demo in five minutes, it doesn't mean in five days your feature is out. That is also why I think the store has to bake quite a bit because I think people need will, will kind of develop the tools and the know-how to build good user experiences. Not just like, yeah, I, I prompted it and now it can do something because that doesn't quite solve the scaffolding yeah. issue. Let's talk about the store, if you don't mind pivoting a little. So we've talked about like the core of the GPT and some of the things and the, and the opportunities it creates. But like what I found interesting about this is if you want to make an app store successful, there's so much work to do there that has nothing to do with AI, which is the core competency of the company right? To build a successful platform, you need to drive distribution and or monetization for the partners building on it so that they have the incentives to build, right? Distribution, rankings, promotions, search, discovery, seeing what other people are doing. There's just like a whole mess of marketplace stuff you have to build to do that, right? Monetization, you need different forms. You need to be different forms of monetization, subscription and app purchases, ways for money to flow through, good interactions that allow it, all of the back fraud office, fraud, fraud protection, yeah. chargeback. <laughs> There's a lot of scaffolding, again, that if you are going to really lean into building an app marketplace that you will have to build over time, it is adjacent to your core competency. It, it, like you have to build Apple app stores, Chrome store, they've all had this like challenge. While I think it's an exciting opportunity, I was surprised they were like, 
we're ready to bite this off. Like, again, it's sort of like the prototype version. It's, I mean, we're talking like, no matter what awesome internal tools you have to build code really, really fast, like we're talking a ton of product to build. And they are like on all angles, leaning in hard on enterprise, which has its whole own host of like scaffolding again, that you need to do that well, right? They're leaning in on building one of the world's largest consumer apps, which has like all of the scaffolding, trust and safety, scaling considerations, core AMI modeling, et cetera. And now this like two-sided marketplace thing and a developer business, <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot for a company to do. And it's, it's scary. <laughs> it's a whole new one. I think the usual thinking would be, oh, you know, when we go out with this, we want to make sure people building on this are going to be successful. Otherwise, they're going to leave and the whole ecosystem kind of unwinds and, and spills in the other direction. My take is that they're looking at this and they feel like they have unlimited shots on goal because of how much momentum and how much excitement there is. Look, plugins just did not work. I don't know if you tried to use them. I tried using them multiple times. They just straight up did not work, right? And, you know, they built with Kayak and Canva and all these folks. All these folks are coming back to the table for another round as like the early partners. So it feels like they're moving so aggressively because they feel like they probably have the wiggle room to screw up multiple times and not ruin their shot at these types of ecosystems. That's, my, that's the sentiment hmm. I get, at least. I actually really appreciate the boldness of all these moves. Yeah, I, it's I do. exciting yeah. to watch. Building an app store is insane amount of work to get it right. And they're like, yeah, we're just going to try it. And it's unclear if it's going to work. I think the other thing I was thinking about with all the other app stores, the iOS app store is a perfect example. The app store actually goes and makes the core product more valuable. Like the fact that you pay so much for your iPhone is because you can get the apps and having more apps makes your phone more valuable to you. In this case, that's not really the case. I think this is just like a, a little independent. Because If you have a math tutor, do you go use the original chat GPT more? Maybe. It's a big question mark. It's not fully clear that that feeds back to making chat GPT more valuable. There's a lot of like business strategy things we can poke holes at. But I, I love that they're like, yeah, we're just going to yeah. roll it out, see what happens. It is fun to watch a company be this bold. The hype around the dev day the day before was unlike anything I've ever seen since a Steve Jobs keynote at an uh, Apple conference. It's just the amount of excitement in advance. And part of what drives that is I'm going to be surprised tomorrow. It's not just like a bunch of edge, you know, little features here and there, which would be totally reasonable. You could say what's most important is focus. What would Sam tell a bunch of startups at YC, right? Like be focused, drive growth. You can would not fault them if they were like, all we're doing is driving growth on ChatGPT. We are just like leaning in really, really hard, but they are going in all directions. And I think a lot of that is driven by the mission to like make AI valuable and useful and safe and awesome for the world. And it is really cool to see that. The one thing that we actually haven't talked about and wasn't on your list for read that also feels like they need to build in order for this to be successful is ways for these GPT builders to communicate with their users, notification yeah. channels, right? The most successful app stores, you know, like iOS provide those because those are the channels to build the habit, habits, like yeah. uh, Jen was talking about. And that actually opens up a whole other territory of things that you have to deal with, yeah. which is around like spam and all the things that the bad actors and the growth people are going to push the edges on is another piece of this puzzle. So 
I had a like fantasy for a minute when I was trying to think about what they were going to announce was that they would do something like in the realm of these autonomous GPT agent type things where you didn't have to prompt it. You could like tell it to do a job and it might actually go do those things or like wake up on its own. And they didn't quite go there. And I wonder whether a they're sort of like taking incremental steps. You can totally see how the GPT store is eventually going to be a thing that does a job store, <laughs> you know, like an agent store. But also because I think that wakes up a whole bunch of like, okay, how often is it allowed to wake up? How often is it allowed to talk to you? What things can it go out in the world and do without anyone asking it to? Like right now, because it is still a human prompting GPT to go take an action, the responsibility ends up back on the human. And I think like once you cross that line, it's like all of a sudden, the, who's responsible for the spam? Is it OpenAI? Is it the app developer? Is it the person who told the bot to go do the thing? I think it opens up a bunch of like interesting problems. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Fred. So your thesis is that they could have done it. Like the technology is mostly there, but they chose not to. And they focused on still human prompted experiences. I, I don't know if they could they. Yeah, I'm sure like people have done it. There are lots of like prototype yeah. baby AGIs, auto GPT type things out there. It's one of those tricky things where like you have to give a GPT a lot of feedback for it to do exactly yeah. the right thing. And I don't think we figured out the feedback loops for enough for something to be like autonomous and successful autonomous. most of the time. So I think it's like the tech exists, but it's not quite it's not quite good enough to be magic. And so I think that's probably what's pulling them back, but it also like unlocks a whole bunch of like who's responsible for the thing that's pinging kayak 48 million times a second or whatever <laughs> like thing you it ends up like deciding to do, you know? So I think there's a piece of that too. I would love to have an autonomous agent for restaurant reservations. I feel like yeah. this, this someone has to has to do this. Uh, the fact that like for reservations that are hard to get, you put a notification, you wait for like some waitlist spot to open up. There has yeah. to be an automated agent. You can just say, do this. I want an agent to automatically plan and schedule all like date nights for my I was wife just going to say that. Because that's our biggest oh, yeah. friction item is just like <laughs> the planning and figuring out what it is. Is like, that's the, that's the agent I want. I don't know how many broadly successful GPT apps there will be, but I do think there will be a lot of custom GPTs that people build for their own use cases that are really valuable. I'll just use the analogy of the Slack platform. There are some great Slack apps and integrations, but most of them are depth of engagement type things. I integrate Jira and now I can use Slack more effectively. It didn't like make Jira more successful, right? It didn't like drive growth. It's not a classical app store in that way. There are a couple, Polly and a few others that grew and some others that grew on the back of it. But actually like where a lot of the usage ends up being is like, I wrote some custom code to integrate my internal systems to Slack, <laughs> right? Like in some like complex way. So for instance, one of the things I'm gonna tinker with this week is like a podcast research GPT, which will say like, hey, I'm gonna give you a list of companies and I want you to go check their blogs and see what updates that they've done. And I can say what recent releases have they had so I can make my own little tech meme for this thing. No one else cares about that. That is not a general purpose GPT. That's a like Fareed GPT, right? And so I do think that there will be some really creative uses like that, that come out and maybe some of them are generalizable, but I think at the power user level, I think that's where we'll see a lot of this stuff is like people building their own very custom thing 
to solve very specific problems. I just did this for our next topic for Airbnb. I used ChatGPT to like research all the recent releases that they've done and got a really great summary. And then like I could be like a prepared person. And I think you could imagine a world where I've like a couple of GPTs, like a meeting prep GPT or something like that, and a podcast research GPT that could just simplifies not having to go into the prompt and type the same stupid things over and over again. I could just press a button. Like what's new? Boom. Here's what's new. That kind of thing. To prepare for this podcast, I've done a little bit of research on diving into Airbnb's recent releases, but I want to set a little bit of context before we go there. About two years ago, Airbnb did some like pretty radical things in terms of how they at least talk about and launch and release new features to their customer base. And they did a lot of internal reorganization around this as well, around the pandemic. And I don't know all of the root causes. I'm not inside the room. They talked about really moving towards what I would say is a more, They de- I think some people described it as an Apple-like way of releasing things. The modern way of building consumer products, which is constantly releasing new things, new improvements, day-to-day, maybe testing them, running them, constantly shipping towards this idea of doing two releases a year that they call the summer release and the winter release. And I think we're now on year three of this. As far as my, I could go back and do some research, these releases sort of started in 2021. They do two a year. They tend to bundle a bunch of large things, tell a story, and ship new stuff twice a year to their customer base on both the host side and the guest side. And so I want to just give a little context around some of the releases they've done. And what I want to talk about is the winter 23 release, which was the most recent one. So going back in time in summer 2022, they released categories. They did some work around split stays and they added a new insurance product they call air cover for trust around being able to book. If I would say the story of the summer 22 release was search and discovery, it was really on the guest side, right? Then in winter 22, they shifted a lot of their story around hosts and earnings. And their big story around it was like, the economy is driving people to look to make money in different ways. And they launched a bunch of host-oriented tools. And their real story was all about how much money hosts are making and how they're adding to their income. And so they launched a new thing they called Airbnb Setup, which is a new onboarding for hosts that allowed you to even one-on-one with a super host to get yourself set up. They added some new categories to the categories product they released before and expanded air cover on the host side. So I thought it was interesting. They went from a very guest, make it easy to book storytelling towards making it a lot better for hosts. And then in summer 23, I would call this the fixing crap people have been complaining about on Airbnb forever (laughs) kind of release. A real customer focused one, which is they added total price display, checkout instructions as something you could look up before you booked, transparency around those things. But they also launched a big update to the rooms product, which is like being able to rent an individual room inside of an Airbnb, kind of like this go back to the roots thing. And now they're launching, I think, shifting back to the guest side again (laughs) and launching major updates they're calling guest favorites to reviews, but also a little bit on the host side with some new listing tools, AI photo tour generation, smart lock integration so that you can like more easily check in a listing editor and some pricing tools and ways to run your business on Airbnb. A lot around like looking at your earnings, understanding what I found interesting is that's like not a lot of stuff. 
it tends to be a small number of sort of big changes that they're doing. And there's probably a ton of other stuff under the hood that's also happening, but that their cadence has really moved towards, in my impression, what looks a lot more like enterprise software delivery. I think you could call it the Apple way, so maybe a hardware way, but really towards like, hey, there is a small number of really important things on both the guest and host side that are biggish bets, right? Bigger moves, and that we're giving you a lot of transparency into before they happen. We are product marketing them, right? We are launching them. We are telling a story. We are rolling them out all at once so that everybody sees them and we're making big swings. And beforehand, we talked a little bit about this gem. It seems like pretty counterintuitive. And I would say my original reaction when I heard this two years ago was this is nuts and really dumb. That was my initial reaction. (laughs) I'm going to be totally honest about it. But I've kind of come around to it a little bit. And, I, I, and I'm and i curious to hear y'all's thoughts both about the recent releases, but also this overall model of like how Airbnb is doing business and building product now and how it compares and contrasts and what the pros and cons of it are. How do you guys build? I, you have a conference. You do well, make launches once a year, right? Yeah. we. So I'll, I'll use Duolingo as an example. And I think I'm still in the camp of does this actually work? Because it's really cool. Watching these releases, I'm like, they do a great job with the marketing component, but I'm also like, do they not A-B test any of this? What if it doesn't work? Do you just launch it to the world? Like the biggest advantage of software when, I mean, for Apple, it made sense. You can't A-B test hardware, but with software, the biggest advantage is you can test if it doesn't work. You don't launch it. You don't talk about, you don't put in your marketing video. So how do they go about it is a big question mark for me. And I think that is partly coming from how we do things. I mean, everything at Duolingo is an A-B test. And we do have once a year a conference where we launch big things. However, even by the time we launch it, we probably have A-B tested it to a small percentage of our users. So we know that it's not a catastrophic failure. So we don't go out on stage and say, hey, here's this new thing that's coming when we have never tested it. I think that is the part which is a big question mark for me, meaning... Do they A-B test some of these leading up to these like big releases? And they're like, okay, we're confident that this can roll out. Or are they like, we're geniuses, like we will figure it out without any A-B test data, or we'll just do the qualitative research and decide what's worth launching and we just give it to the world. If that's the case, that's fascinating to me because I think you do lose, especially when you have a web-based, mobile-based product, this huge advantage of actually seeing if your users are liking it, what is doing it to your metrics, and refining it before you launch it. That's also super important. Like doing a new big feature, most of the time the MVP doesn't work. So you like iterate on it for three more times to get it to a point where it works and then you launch it. Like that's our model at least. Like, when we do a massive change, for example, we redesigned our homepage two years ago now, a year and a half ago, and the first goal was was not good. So we A-B tested our way into improving what wasn't working, and then we gave it to everybody. But that made it also impossible for us to make a marketing moment out of it because we had A-B tested for a while. So to me, this model seems insane still. Although all that being said, I love their marketing videos. I, I, I watched Brian's own presentation of what's broken in the app. Like he goes through the UI, points at the things that are like, look, this is terrible. I, I did like a bunch of clicks to get here. And here's how we changed it. I actually, I think that's a very good way to say, yeah, I experienced it. I let me show you how bad it was. And we fixed it. That's a pretty cool product announcement. Most companies just announced a new thing. He showed what was broken about it, which I'm a fan of. 
but I just don't quite understand how it works with A-B testing for them. Yeah, it's interesting because such a big part of the problems that a marketplace like Airbnb faces are around perception as much as they are around the actual experience. Airbnb, I get screwed when I'm checking out. Like I have to do all this cleanup is like a common gripe. It says $200 a night and then I click through and it's 1700 bucks for two days because of all these additional fees. That's as much a problem of perception as it is a problem of reality and experience. And so one benefit they get out of this is they get to like pivot the story. They get to say like, you told us you hate X and we fixed X, right? Which I think is a really interesting way of approaching it because if they just A-B tested showing total prices versus per night prices, I bet you it's really bad for metrics. I bet you it's really bad for metrics. There's no way the A-B test wins. But if you control the narrative and you make a big push about it and you do it everywhere at once, you sort of are able to overcome some of the bias and sort of like make your reality versus just explore reality and see what happens, which is sort of what happens when you do a lot of small changes. I think it's a very similar with this reviews problem, which is like a 4.6 is a bad review. That's in the bottom 20% of reviews but they can't obliterate the five-star rating system. They'd lose millions of reviews that have been made over the course of time. And so they're like, okay, we're gonna tell you about this new thing, guest favorites. We're gonna make it a reality. I think does help. And I think the other benefit that they get out of it is they're able to make major changes across the host and guest side at the same time and sort of like move the ecosystem forward in a single bet versus iterating here, iterating there, and ending up in a disconnected situation. Like, I think that's another interesting benefit of this for marketplaces. Brian, curious your thoughts. I'm kind of sitting here maybe with a different thought in my head as I look at all this stuff that they're listing. And you, you mentioned in your intro, one of the benefits of doing these big releases is to drop big new major stuff, like have time for that stuff to bake. And I look at the list of a lot of stuff and maybe I'm just being kind of negative Nancy here, but it just feels like a lot of small mm. stuff to me. So my take on this, Brian, because I had a similar reaction is this is a feature strategy, meaning they are building features to improve the existing product for their existing customer base, especially their power users in a bunch of different ways. They are not doing product market fit expansion. They're not adding mm. new experiences gone, you know, like a bunch of these things they did that were big bets to move in a different right. direction are not really happening. Like they're not really doing that. They right. added monthly stays, but it's really just some like tweaks around being able to search for a month. So why are they in that mode right now? That's my curiosity here is they seem to be very like customer focused. Like we're hearing complaints and we're fixing those things and we're telling a big story around it. But like Airbnb is still Airbnb. Like the rooms product, you could kind of say is an expansion play, but not really, right? So yeah, I, I don't know why they're in that mode. It is very interesting. I assume part of it has to be, they. you need to create marketing moments to get hosts to adopt certain things. And host adoption really means, for example, if you want- Great point. If you want hosts to- actually provide rooms, they need to be aware, right? So uh, if you create these release moments they, and you kind of 
channel your marketing energy into those moments, it's much easier for them to realize the feature exists rather than A-B testing just like slips it in and it appears technically. So it's hard to create a, <laughs> a, a marketing moment after an A-B test. So I assume since a lot of, even if you want to make a, a, a change to the guest experience, you generally need hosts to do something like your host to, for example, organize their photos in a certain way or list the room in a certain way, do an action from their side. And I assume to do that well, you need a marketing moment because then that you you like really communicated to say, okay, you have this now. People watch those videos, they see maybe like uh, in products uh, promos, etc., and they understand, okay, I have a room, I should list it that way, and that kickstarts the kind of marketplace adoption. I assume that's part of the thesis. Hmm. That comes back to my analogy of like they're running it like an enterprise software company, which also has similar things when you have large enterprise customers. And trust me, we learned this lesson the hard way at Slack. If you just put <laughs> stuff, change shit, they get mad. They run their business on it. They need it to be, you know, they have their own internal docs. They have a whole bunch of stuff. So you actually have to do this. Like, it looks naive. Like, why would you release only twice a year? That's dumb. But under the hood, when you think about the real customer needs, there's a good reason for it, which is like, they have change management. You have to align with that. You need to tell them in advance that things are happening. And here with hosts, I think that's an astute observation, Jim, that like to make anything work on Airbnb, you need hosts to adopt it. And hosts do not want things to be changing for them every five seconds. That's a nightmare for them to run their business, right? They are, they are little companies being run. Now, it's not quite enterprise. I, I'm sure they have some really big players on there but they do need to drive adoption. They've decided that the product is not the right way to drive adoption. Releases are the best way to drive adoption and that that will change customer behavior. I just wonder what is the era they're in where they're taking big experience bets, but not like big new things. I, I guess my read on this is I think with any marketplace or network product, right? These things act as ecosystems and there's all these like second and third order effects to the things that you release. And what will happen essentially is that your user base either on demand or supply will constantly and consistently push the edges until you start to implement something to like push back or prune back or change the incentive to redirect it in another way it's it's kind of like this constantly moving game and the narrative at least from the user side of the equation for the past year is that essentially hosts push this game too far right with crazy cleaning fees and a task list of 20 things before you check out and deceptive photos and all of these other things. And it kind of feels like to me that maybe that they ignored or didn't do enough on that pruning of the incentives or these, these behaviors for a period of time in order to either deal with COVID or launch big new product market fit expansions. And so this feels like a packaged attempt at a shot in the arm to essentially prune the ecosystem back or point it in a healthier, healthier direction, right? And Chesky has made that very clear previously that he's thought that stuff has gotten out of control. And so I don't know that that that's my sense of things is like, if you're not constantly pruning those things, they get out of control. And this is sort of a larger pushback on that set of things. I'm just curious, is there another consumer software company that does anything similar? I mean, Apple for sure, but that's, I would bucket that as hardware, not necessarily software. 
Yeah, the reason Apple has to do it is because probably cultural, but also the deep integration between hardware and software requires you to be like incredibly aligned in terms of what you're building and what you're shipping, right? The other thing he talked about in the restructuring was that it simplifies their planning like dramatically, right? They only have to think about roadmapping and planning around two major moments a year. And so I do think that there is a world in which that probably creates a lot of internal benefit, which is like, hey, these are the things we want to do. Let's get the whole company aligned around them versus the swarm model that's much more common in in consumer software where like each team is running their own roadmap on their own thing and doing other releases and someone has to figure out how to you know manage all of this. It's almost like the old days of shipping a box. It's like, hey, there's two boxes a year and that way we have great product marketing and great alignment. So the benefit they get is storytelling, product marketing, driving adoption. The downside is it's probably way less nimble upside, they probably do less stuff as a result. And that's maybe good for customers on some level, but I can't think of anybody else who does this. That's why it's such an interesting outlier and why I was so negative on it. My knee-jerk reaction is this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm going to be totally honest, <laughs> but now that it's two years in and they're still doing it, they're obviously getting some kind of major benefit out of it. Do you think there is like some combo of these models that works? Or do you think that the stuff to make either the way, Jim, you approach software development at Duolingo or the way that Aaron B, B approaches it, that there's just there's a, so many things in terms of the operating cadence, how you do planning, all of those kinds of things, is that you, you kind of have to live on one spectrum of the other to make it work? Or do you think there is like some mixture of the pots here? I feel like there is because what is the benefit of a release at the end? It's, it's a marketing moment. So you want the marketing moment because then that creates adoption that builds your brand, whatever it does, all those things, but you also probably want to preserve some of your flexibility to test features on users because in the Airbnb case, that's the part where I'm like, I don't know how do they, maybe they do some small AB tests and then we don't see it. And then they actually release it. I don't know if that's true, but I think that in a, in a world where you can do both is best. So, but by that, I mean, if you have a great feature, you built it, we have it today, but we say, well, actually our release is five months away. Let's park it. You've lost five months of an evolution that you would have gotten otherwise. Like maybe that's a revenue feature. You would have gotten five months of revenue. So waiting on sitting on something for five months is by, in my brain, just suboptimal, like speed matters a lot. However, maybe you do things that are like so transformational, but they are going to take six months anyway. So you time them. So you do get this like launch moments. And for the smaller things, you you keep continuing to ship them out as soon as possible. I, I say this because this is the discussion we've had at Duolingo quite a bit. Like, we would love to have bigger moments of launches. We have one conference a year that's called Duocon. We, we talked about math and music publicly for the first time there. And, and then that was kind of our launch moment. But we don't quite wait. Like, it, it worked out perfectly because math and music was going to be ready right around that time. But we, if we had math and music ready to roll out in January, it certainly wouldn't have made any sense to wait until October. So I feel like there's a hybrid model here where you can get wins on both sides. So you keep running your A-B test, and I love you called it the swarm model. For a, like You run your swarm model <laughs> for like the smaller changes. Your product keeps getting better. However, you time some of your pivotal changes as much as you can without slowing anything down. So you create launch and marketing moments off of it. Feels like a sweet spot that you can shoot for. I mean, at least at Duolingo, we, we try to make both of them work. 
We did a little bit at HubSpot too. You know, we had the inbound conference. They still do the inbound conference every year. It's the huge marketing moment for HubSpot. And I think to your point, I think one of the places it had the biggest effect was it was an activating effect among our partner ecosystem versus our customer base. And I think they needed a reason to adopt, you know, the evolved narrative or the evolved things to like sell through. But I I would say in the HubSpot experience is during my time there, there was definitely not as much A-B testing when I first started there. I think that started to change by the time I left, but we did do like continuous feature releases. If anything, the thing that did not happen was we had something we waited five months. It was more like this thing that maybe would have in a normal circumstances would have been ready a month or two after inbound somehow gets pulled up and the team yeah. finds a way to get it ready for that marketing moment. So with those marketing moments, there was so much time spent on just making sure the narrative that was being told would be like long lasting, right? Because whatever you say in those moments sticks. It's hard to iterate and evolve from that. But yeah, that was a little bit of my experience there, which wasn't enterprise and it wasn't consumer. It was kind of somewhere in the middle. I think if you're going to do something like this, you need something to tell you that you're on the right track if you're not going to release it. Like, what is the point of A-B testing? The point of A-B testing is, again, empirical understanding of whether your hypothesis about what something would do and the reality of it are the same. I always say like experimentation is a tool of humility, not decision-making. It's like, Hey, I think this is going to work, but it may or may not. And I want to use that as a way to like figure out how to iterate and move forward. You need some mechanism for that. And there are a lot of different mechanisms. One is constantly be working with users and do user usability testing. Now, does that solve all the same things as AB testing? No, but it, it, it moves towards the same idea, which is how do I build confidence in an idea, a hypothesis, a, a release before I put it out in the world? Another, which is like the Apple sort of Pixar model is develop a deep sense of internal taste that is really like important and is a huge part of your process and a lot of dog fooding and a lot of usage, which is like, I basically A-B test on my internal customers and they are smart enough about knowing what the rest of the world wants. You know, that's what really taste is, is like, I have confidence that my own opinions and the opinions of my customer base are roughly the same. That's really hard to develop. And I think that's where Airbnb is kind of headed, which is trying to move towards like more of a a taste driven development process. Now that means you have to have a team that cares about that, that aren't just like, let me try something and see if it works. You have to like trust them, but you need some mechanism to make that kind of thing work. I think the other point I'll make is that like, it is very rare that something's done and then you're just sitting on it waiting for a release as Brian pointed out. At every company I've worked at, when you set goals, OKRs, whatever, for the end of the quarter, whether or not you're talking to customers or not, all the crap gets released in the last week of the quarter. it's just like the incentives of how like people build stuff. I'm sure you see this, Jeff. It's like, if you say this feature will be released by March March 31st, it's like, oddly enough, always March 25th that it gets launched, right? It's like one of those things. (laughs) And so like, if you just accept that as the incentive, which I think is a part of the piece of the puzzle, it's like, let's just accept that that's the case, that things just fill the amount of time you give them. Let's like tell everyone they have till this date and then let's tell a great go-to-market story around it. I think is it, it it's counterintuitive, but I guess it could work, you know? So I do think that there is a list of things 
that maybe are worth doing. I would say if you're trying to meaningfully change a customer base's behavior around a thing and you have a channel or a way to talk to them, and Airbnb is wonderful because they're such a core part of the zeitgeist, then it would probably be a mistake not to use that moment to drive the adoption of new features and new strategies. Relying just on your product to drive the adoption is a very high bar. So I think that's the advice I would pull back to. But like most people don't have a megaphone. Like they don't have any way to talk to their customers at all. They're not big enough. They're not important enough. They don't get all the press rallied around it. I would not try this if you're not Brian Chesky. Like, you know what I mean? I think yeah. you need the megaphone for the strategy to work. I, I agree 100%. Because then you if you can't create a marketing moment, then the strategy, you only have the... Yeah. <laughs> the negative <laughs> sides of the strategy. The positive sides come from the marketing moment. I also think this probably prevents the A-B testing trap quite a bit, which is when you have a metric, you you give this metric to a team, you give all the great A-B testing tools that make it really easy to test. Very quickly, those teams come up with very small ideas to test because you can measure it really quickly. Can we change the color of this button, the copy, etc.? They're very quick to run. You run them and you can move your metrics, but you never quite think about, okay, if I'm going to work on something for four months, what is the greatest thing I can build? Because this, this A-B testing trap sucks you into like quicker things, quicker results and quicker gains. If you have a six month release cycle, well, you can't do anything. You can't, you're not going to go, uh, I, I released the color change of this button. No one's going to do that. So you end up doing the substantial product changes, yeah. which is a good side benefit to- uh, Also, to if you're forced to tell cycle. a customer the story- of why this is good for them, I think you actually like, it changes the incentive structure. I once got asked an incredible interview question in a, in a job interview. What's a product you think stinks, but is really effective, right? <laughs> and my answer was some travel site. It was probably either like booking.com or kayak or something like that. And my explanation was this thing works perfectly for the problem that that company is trying to solve, which is they have high intent search-driven traffic that comes in and if you don't convert them, they're gone, right? So there's all this crazy shit, like A-B tested to hell, like every single like tiny little thing is A-B tested. And so I'm like, do you want insurance? Do you want this? Here's this promoted post, like all this stuff. And it's a really yeah. messy experience, but I bet it converts like crazy, right? Like I bet it's awesome. Amazon, well, I feel like Amazon, Amazon is, is definitely like, there. There's no, no no delight, like zero delight in the experience, but it works. Like your your package will arrive right. in freaking and it works great. In for these high intent pathways, right? Which is like, I want this roll yeah. of Scotch tape. Get it to my house as fast as possible. Like boom. <laughs> yes. But it has no soul, and it doesn't work. And Airbnb, this process basically is an anti pressure valve for that kind of like hyper optimization that like slowly degrades your product to a place where it like doesn't work anymore. So I think there's some yes. benefit there, dude. It's been awesome to have you on. Great. Thank you so much. It's been super fun to hear all your thoughts on this. Thank you for having me. Honestly. I mean, I I'm glad we recorded all this, but it, it, this really felt yeah. like a coffee chat that we just had at a coffee shop. So I had a lot of fun doing yeah. it. It was great to get to know both of you. That's a wrap on this week's episode with Jem Kansu, the VP of product at Duolingo. Thanks for joining us. As always, feel free to comment on LinkedIn and join us at unsolicitedfeedback.co. See you next week.